0: Cavalry audio. In the days after the murder of Rodrigo Rosenberg and the dissemination of his video testimonial, a shrine to the memory of the fallen crusader was erected at the place where his dead body had been found. The ground had been consecrated by photos, banners, and candles, and a large wooden cross had been erected a physical symbol of Rosenberg's martyrdom. Throughout the investigation of the crime, the shrine stood as a monument to the slain hero. The world saw Rosenberg as a saint, a victim sacrificed at the altar of Guatemalan violence and corruption. In the days after the truth emerged, after Carlos Castresana exposed Rosenberg as a fraud and his murder as a sham, the shrine was was vandalized. The trinkets and images placed so lovingly by Rosenberg's supporters lay strewn on the street like detritus. The cross stood crooked. Now the world saw Rosenberg not as a martyr, but as a transgressor. The truth, implacable, inescapable, had turned hero to villain and tragedy to farce. And as all of Guatemala struggled to make sense of the Rosenberg case, the major players involved in this bizarre episode fought to preserve their reputations and their legacies. What came next? For the Rosenberg and Musa families, those most directly impacted by Rosenberg's plot. For the Valdez Spice brothers, duped by their lifelong friend into committing murder for Luis Mendizaba and Mario David Garcia, the shadowy operators who may have formed an integral part of the conspiracy. What came next for President Colom and his allies, those accused of heinous crimes? For Carlos Castesana and Sisig, the corruption-fighting organization that had uncovered the truth. And finally, what came next for Guatemala? for the democracy that teetered on the brink of collapse. How do we make sense of the frenzy that gripped its people for all those months? How could a baseless and convoluted conspiracy voiced by a nondescript lawyer captivate the heart and soul of a nation, galvanizing a social movement and nearly toppling a government? From Cavalry Audio and executive producer Oscar Isaac, I'm Edgar Castillo, and this is The Rosenberg Case. You're listening to Episode 10, The Aftermath. Now that we have a full picture of every sinuous aspect of the Rosenberg conspiracy, I want to spend the next few minutes going over a few of the principal characters in this drama. I want to talk a little bit about how they responded to the revelation of the truth and where they are now. Eduardo Rosenberg, Rodrigo's eldest son, continues to hold that the CICIG interpretation of events is mistaken. In August of 2011, Eduardo published an op-ed column in a Guatemalan newspaper, finally breaking his public silence on the Rosenberg affair. In the op-ed, he makes no mention of the results delivered by Castresana and the CICIG team. In investigation, he labels the product of, quote, a failed justice system rather he chooses to focus on rodrigo rosenberg the man the father quote what defined my father was his life regardless of the circumstances under which it came to an end whatever they were in that realization lies our peace eduardo addressed the motivations behind his father's actions by emphasizing the bigger picture quote All those who thought that the ultimate goal of my father was to overthrow a particular government only took from his eloquent and courageous message what was convenient for them, and still ignore his meaning. Those of us who really understand know that his request transcends beyond a presidential term. We know that his words will be immortal, invulnerable to criticism, and will resonate in eternity. He concluded his op-ed by echoing the words with which his father started the video that kicked off the scandal. Quote, to paraphrase a great man whom I admire the most, my name is Eduardo Rosenberg-Pais, and if you are reading this message, it is because I am proud to be the son of Rodrigo Rosenberg-Marsano. Let's now talk about the Valdez Spice brothers, the men who Rosenberg tricked into hiring the gang of sicarios that killed him. Remember, the Valdez Spice brothers were cousins of Rosenberg through his first marriage. Rosenberg considered them family, but that didn't stop him from using them to orchestrate his own assassination the Valdez Spice brothers learned the truth of what their lifelong friend had done, probably on the day of his funeral. They stayed in Guatemala for the next eight months, hoping the Sisig investigation would not uncover the truth. But when all signs pointed in the opposite direction, the brothers fled Guatemala. In December of 2009, shortly before Sisig issued a warrant for their arrest, probably in a panic, they vanished. But after almost seven months on the run as fugitives from the law, the brothers returned to Guatemala and turned themselves over to police authorities on Monday, June 28, 2010 at 8 a.m. Under heavy media scrutiny, the brothers were transferred to a military base prison for their own protection. At 8 o'clock in the morning, practically on the dot, we received a call from a person representing the Valdés País brothers who communicated their willingness to turn themselves in immediately and give themselves up to the law. The only condition they had is that they wanted to turn themselves into the Sisig. Despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, the brothers proclaimed their innocence. They insisted that Rosenberg asked them to find a bodyguard to protect him against an extortionist and that they had nothing to do with the assassination. Despite their protestations, the Guatemalan attorney general's office opened prosecution against them for the murder of Rodrigo Rosenberg. The case against the brothers relied in part on testimony from cooperating witnesses, including Jesus Manuel Cardona Medina, the intermediary between the Valdez Spice Brothers and the gang of hitmen. As the case proceeded, the brothers showed that they weren't willing to go down without a fight. In the summer of 2010, Carlos Castresana called a press conference in which he accused the Valdez Spice Brothers, along with members of the business elite of a conspiracy to destroy incriminating evidence and to sabotage the case against them. Sure enough, in July of 2013, Gardona Medina, the chief witness against the brothers, suddenly and mysteriously retracted his testimony, claiming that he had been coerced by CC to lie. Another four years later, after a prolonged series of delays, a judge named Minor Moto definitively closed the case against the Valdez Spice brothers, owing to a lack of evidence. And so, on August 28, 2017, after seven years in prison, the brothers were free. Meaning that to this day, no one has been held criminally culpable for planning the murder of Rodrigo Rosenberg. There's one more twist to this part of the saga. Minor Moto, the judge who decided that there wasn't enough evidence to continue the prosecution, is currently a fugitive from justice. There are two warrants out for his arrest, for obstruction of justice and bribery. Given Moto's role in ending the case against the Valdez Spice Brothers, I'm sure you can put two and two together on what really happened there. Despite the scandals, protests, conspiracies, and their own missteps, President Colom and the First Lady Sandra Colom managed to survive the Rosenberg affair with the presidency and Guatemalan democracy more or less intact. Colom spent the remainder of his time in office continuing to fight for the disadvantaged in Guatemala, for those who had elected him to office in the first place. Nevertheless, his presidency remained marred by several scandals and accusations of corruption, some of which we've already discussed. The Constitution of Guatemala prevents incumbent presidents from running for a second four-year term. Therefore, as 2012 approached, the crucial question for Colom became one of legacy. Who would succeed him? as leader of the Liberal National Unity of Hope Party. Who would take up the mantle, defy the odds, and attempt to defeat the Conservatives for a second time? That's why I've come here, here today, to the municipality of Misco, here in Carolina. To announce my decision to run for the Presidency of the Republic as the National Unity of Hope candidate for the Presidency for the Great National Alliance of the Country. That was Sandra Colom announcing her candidacy for President of Guatemala and kicking off her 2011 campaign. She declared that she was running, quote, for the people, for my country, for the elderly, children, disabled, abandoned, orphaned, for all the needy in Guatemala. The only problem was that the Constitution of Guatemala also prohibits the extended family members of an incumbent president from running for the same office. So President Colom actually divorced his wife in March of 2011 in order to circumvent this law and allow her to run for office. But on June 29, 2011, the Supreme Electoral Tribunal disqualified former First Lady Sandra Torres as a presidential candidate, which meant that in 2011, the National Unity for Hope political party fielded no candidates for president despite being the incumbent party. It also meant that Guatemala would no longer have a liberal in the presidential palace. Sandra Torres, now divorced from her husband, tried for the presidency again in 2015. This time she was able to run, but ended up losing to a former television comedian. Yes, you heard me right. The former first lady tried her luck again in 2019, but lost once more to a guy who had spent 10 months in jail for his role in the massacre of seven inmates at a Guatemalan prison. Normal. Shortly after losing that election, Sandra Torres was arrested on accusations of campaign finance violations. About a year earlier, in 2018, her ex-husband, Álvaro Colom, along with his former finance minister and eight other cabinet members, had also been arrested after a cc led investigation uncovered allegations of embezzlement and fraud. Interestingly enough, the cases against both the former president and first lady are actually completely unrelated to the accusations of money laundering made by Rosenberg in his video. Sandra Torres is now out of prison. She is currently on house arrest and plotting her comeback. She's even made some noise about running for president. Again, the Colombs, the great liberal hope of Guatemala, had been elected to office on the promise that they would fight for the common man and not be ensnared by the systemic corruption that every other Guatemalan presidency had perpetuated. The Colombs may have survived the Rosenberg case, but it appears as if they could not survive themselves. Currently, Alvaro Colom is undergoing a different kind of struggle. In late 2020, Colom announced that doctors had detected cancer in his esophagus. He is now fighting for his life. The candidate who succeeded Colom as president of Guatemala in 2012 was his old nemesis, Otto Pérez Molina, the man everyone called Manodura or Iron Fist. The uber-conservative ex-general campaigned as the only candidate capable of restoring order to Guatemala and ended up winning with 53% of the vote. After taking power, Perez Molina vowed to cleanse the nation of crime and corruption, only to become perhaps the most corrupt president in the country's history. Among the several high-profile corruption scandals that beset his administration, Perez Molina and his vice president, a woman named Roxana Baldetti, were arrested for masterminding a criminal network and bribery scheme within the Guatemalan Customs Administration. The corruption case was called La Línea, or The Line, and the investigation was led by Cicic. By October of 2015, both Manodura and his vice president were under arrest, along with 30 other members of the Guatemalan government and bureaucracy. The vice president also currently faces charges of drug trafficking in the United States, so she's got that going for her as well. In retrospect, it's not really that surprising that a man who had been directly implicated in massacres of indigenous villages and who had led an illegal security network called the Syndicate, would try to steal as much money as he could once elected president. The trial of Perez Molina and Baldetti began in January of 2022. One of the chief suspects in the La Linea case one of the men deemed by CICIG investigators to be a leader in the corruption ring was none other than Luis Mendizaba. He was alleged to have used his tailor shop, La Oficinita, or the little office, to help coordinate the bribery scheme at the heart of the case. But when Boutique Emilio was raided by authorities on April 16, 2015, the old spy wasn't there. He had fled the country, deciding to take his chances and go on the run. However, hidden in the little office, the police did find over one million quetzales, Guatemalan currency. We don't know for sure whether Luis Mendizabal pulled the strings in the Rosenberg case, using his friend to effectuate a bizarre type of coup. But we do know that Luis Mendizabal, now in his 80s, is currently a fugitive from justice accused of very serious crimes. His whereabouts are currently unknown. The startling conclusion of the Rosenberg case was probably the high-water mark for Carlos Castaneda's tenure as director of CICIG, and perhaps the pinnacle of his prosecutorial career. That's a roundabout way of saying that after solving the Rosenberg case, it all went downhill for the Spanish crime fighter. Castresana's confrontational style and dogged dedication to fighting corruption in Guatemala swiftly earned him enemies on all sides. The conservative elite were especially upset with the denouement of the Rosenberg affair. They had been hoping to get rid of President Colón and were disappointed that Castesana had been unable to deliver that desired result. By the summer, Castesana was exhausted, unpopular, and under extreme pressure. He decided that his presence was actually hindering Sisig's mission in Guatemala, and so resigned as director. He returned home to Spain, a man defeated. Bested not only by the impossible mission set before him in Guatemala, but perhaps by his own hubris. It’s now been over a decade since the Rosenberg case gripped Guatemala in furor, scandal, and conspiracy. If Rosenberg’s goal was to cleanse his home country of corruption, to inspire change and make a difference in the lives of the people, he failed. Guatemala remains more or less a mafia state, mired in violent crime and corruption from the streets to the hallowed halls of power. And CICIG, the UN-backed anti-corruption organization that was supposed to clean up Guatemala, is gone. President Jimmy Morales, himself under investigation on charges of corruption, decided to not renew the commission's mandate And on September 3rd of 2019, the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala closed its doors and left Guatemala for good. Sisig took on an impossible task, trying to clean up a historically corrupt nation, and lost. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, with a better understanding of the factors that drove the Rosenberg case and the controversy surrounding it, I think we can look back and zoom out, offering a better, more holistic understanding of what happened and why. And to do that, to truly understand the phenomenon that was the Rosenberg case, we need to talk about Greta Thunberg, She's a time traveler. Did you know that? Oh, and vaccines have microchips in them. That's totally true. Also lizard people. Apparently we have reptilian overlords, which sounds not that great. QAnon, Pizzagate, Flat Earth, Hollow Earth, New World Order, The Deep State, Jewish space lasers, Nazis on the moon, Kylie Jenner is a clone, Tupac is alive in Siberia and Ted Cruz is the Zodiac Killer. To understand the Rosenberg case, the phenomenon it was and the phenomena it portended, we need to talk about conspiracy theories, how they work and why people believe in them. Alan Moore, creator of Watchmen, once said, the main thing that I learned about conspiracy theory is that conspiracy theorists believe in a conspiracy because that is more comforting. The truth of the world is that it is actually chaotic. The truth is that it is not the Illuminati or the Jewish banking conspiracy or the gray alien theory. The truth is far more frightening. Nobody is in control. The world is rudderless, end quote. Like wrapping a warm blanket around your shoulders, it feels soothing to create a reality that imposes order upon a chaotic world, even if it's a false, outlandish reality. In many ways, a conspiracy theory is an act of creation, a piece of fictive performance. Because at the heart of every conspiracy is a story featuring heroes and villains good guys and bad guys, a compelling narrative capable of absorbing the senselessness of the world into its tropes and story arc, capable of explaining everything in stark, simple, Manichaean terms. There's a kind of human instinct or urge to believe in conspiracies. Which is why it's not surprising that we've been coming up with them for so long. After all, the conspiracy theory that puppet master Jews are secretly running the world can be traced back all the way to the 1700s. Way before George Soros became the target of stupid ass anti-Semites the world over. But we're not in the 1700s anymore. And we're well past 2009 the year Rosenberg committed suicide by attempted coup d'etat. We live in an entirely different world now. One in which the distance between a person and an idea can be measured in clicks on a keyboard. Algorithms drive the discourse now. Algorithms designed by massive multinational conglomerates and social media giants like Google, Facebook, Snap, TikTok, and Amazon. Let's talk about YouTube specifically. The platform upon which the Rosenberg video went viral. Every single day, users around the world watch one billion hours of video on YouTube. Nearly 80% of all global internet users have a YouTube account. And content on the platform is available in 80 different languages. YouTube isn't just about uploading and watching videos. It's also the second largest search engine in the world behind Google, which owns YouTube, and which makes YouTube perhaps the largest source of information, misinformation, and disinformation out there. So what does this mean for the creation and dissemination of conspiracy theories? The obvious answer is that it's never been easier to do both. It also means that for an entire generation of YouTube natives, a conspiracy theory isn't some arcane bit of information you find in a dusty book in the weirdo section of the library, or some mind-blowing diatribe you hear in a smoke-filled college dorm room. Now, a conspiracy theory is just another piece of content the equivalent of sports highlights or makeup tutorials or cute baby compilations. In other words, the sheer ubiquity of conspiracy theory content on YouTube has both turned it into its own genre and infused it with a kind of normalizing credibility it would not otherwise have. It also means that now conspiracy theories in addition to being comforting and reassuring, are also entertaining and kind of fun. Imagine if instead of sitting down in front of that camera and filming an eerie last testament to the world, Rodrigo Rosenberg had simply written a letter detailing his allegations of a conspiracy at the highest levels of the Guatemalan government. And imagine that he sent that letter to newspapers and other print outlets. Would that letter, simple words on a page, have had the same effect as the video did? Could that letter, disseminated through various print outlets, have possibly produced the same groundswell protest movement throughout the country? I highly doubt it. I think the reason the Rosenberg video was so effective That galvanizing opposition to the government was because it was so cinematic. It combined a gripping story featuring high stakes drama and shocking twists with moving images, faces and names. It could have been the plot of a 70s style political thriller directed by Alan J. Pakula, The Parallax View set in Guatemala. The Rosenberg video was the perfect marriage between message and medium. It captivated the nation by virtue of the strength of the visual storytelling and its explanatory power. In his video, Rosenberg clearly laid out why Guatemala was in such dire straits. Rampant crime, government corruption, economic depression. There was a reason for all of it. There was a shadowy cabal of nefarious actors at the rudder, steering the country towards the rocks. And Rosenberg himself was a compelling protagonist, a tragic hero, a martyr to a righteous cause. He had been willing to lay down his life rather than submit to the villains of the peace, the people ruining Guatemala. What no one knew, What no one could have possibly anticipated was that the story Rosenberg told was almost completely fictional, manufactured. It was as if he had put it together on a storyboard with a crack team of writers, well-versed in the the save-the-cat mechanics of plot and structure. Rosenberg, perhaps with the help of Luis Mendizábal and Mario David Garcia, had effectively created a piece of content, conspiracy as content, and had chosen the perfect platform upon which to disseminate it. And in my opinion, the whole Rosenberg affair inaugurated a new era of political disinformation. It served as a prototype for what a conspiracy theory could do when turned into entertainment and deployed on social media. Conspiracy as content. That's the world we live in now. When you've got five minutes to kill and you want to stave off even the slightest twinge of boredom, you can pull out your phone and access a whole range of possible entertainment options. Facebook, Snapchat, Fortnite, WhatsApp, Candy Crush, Kindle, TikTok netflix wordle minecraft tinder you can doom scroll through twitter or stalk your ex-girlfriend on instagram not that i do either of those things you can listen to music or a podcast or you can pull up youtube and finish watching that video from that random dude talking about how bill gates is actually a lizard person giving kids cancer through 5g wireless technology The point is, conspiracy theories are now just popular pieces of content, produced by content creators with millions of followers, competing for mindshare with every other thing on your phone. Given their popularity and propensity to go viral, it's not surprising that many politicians have begun to embrace conspiracy theories, promulgating them not only on social media but on television, and even in the hallowed halls of Congress. These politicians are leveraging the popularity of conspiracy content to both bolster their online clout and boost their poll numbers. It's becoming a viable political strategy. Most of these conspiracies are just kind of goofy perhaps a consequence of the fact that they're produced in the dark fever swamps of Reddit and 4chan. But what would happen if politicians stopped simply exploiting grassroots conspiracies for their own benefit and started to manufacture them? Can we imagine a world in which political parties, super PACs, and donor networks use white-shoe consulting firms and focus groups to actually generate conspiracy theories, weaponizing them from the top down on social media platforms in order to attack and weaken their opposing candidates. Can we imagine a world in which an incumbent president spreads clearly false conspiracy theories as part of an overt systematic effort to achieve their political objectives? In some ways, we already live in that world. In some ways, this is the world the Rosenberg case foreshadowed. A world in which there is no objective point of reference to hold on to. In which the truth is something that only exists in quotation marks. A world in which a single person with a single voice can nearly bring down a democratically elected government not by speaking truth to power but by telling a lie to the people from Cavalry Audio and executive producer Oscar Isaac you've been listening to the Rosenberg case